Take your Bible and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't fret. We have food for you today. You do not have to go stand in line somewhere. But I am between you and that food. I know that. I don't want to be like Pharaoh and not let the people go. But this is a rich passage, so we're going to try and milk it for all that it's worth. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you as He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. We'll stop there for this morning. Now we've covered a lot of territory in the last several months, and I am sure that some of you, probably most of you, need a reminder of where we were back in chapter 2. I say that because I had to go back and look at my own sermon outlines that I preached to remind myself of chapter 2. Memory does not improve with age, or so I'm told. I do have a bit of introductory work catching us back up, but it is needful. We will not be here all day, but bear with me. Put your thinking cap on for just a moment and listen on purpose. So beginning back in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul broke off into somewhat of a parenthetical argument. He he broke off of, off of this narrative of Titus and his visiting Corinth. And for some five chapters, Paul has defended and defined his ministry. Titus has actually returned to Paul with good news from Corinth. We'll see that in this chapter that we just read. But it's not all good. There were still some people in the church, enough people opposing Paul, seduced by false teachers, that Paul has addressed it in very direct language. And the most direct language is still yet to come. We haven't seen the most direct yet. They'd also seem to renege on their promise to donate money to the poor saints in Jerusalem. At the very least, 
They had delayed that. And Paul is going to address that in the coming chapters. But despite their concerns, Titus still returned to the Apostle Paul with good news. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up for a second. This epistle, 2 Corinthians, is most likely at least the fourth communication that the Apostle Paul has had with this church. I know I talked about that a lot early on. We need to readdress that so everybody knows exactly where we are. I know we see 2 Corinthians. This must be the second letter. Well, no, it's, it's probably the fourth. Here's what we know. Paul first wrote them a letter about keeping company with sexually immoral people. A letter that they misunderstood. We know that because Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. That he had written them a letter telling them not to keep company with sexually immoral people, but goes to explain that he's not talking about the sexually immoral of the world, but the sexually immoral in the church. They had misunderstood the point of that first letter. Then Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that we know Paul wrote. And in 1 Corinthians, he corrects the sin of divisiveness in the church. He corrected several moral and theological lapses and then he answered a bunch of questions that they had sent to him. It seems from 1 Corinthians 16 that Timothy delivered the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. You know, we're not talking about Timothy here. We're talking about Titus. So there's another communication going on. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Paul told them in 1 Corinthians that he planned to visit them after going to Macedonia. Maybe even staying with them several months. Now it's impossible to be dogmatic. Here's a likely scenario that occurred after the church received 1 Corinthians. After Paul received information about unexpected problems in Corinth, he knew he needed to return sooner rather than later, as he had explained in 1 Corinthians. In fact, in the first chapter of this book, we find that Paul had decided to visit them on the way to Macedonia and then to come back to them from Macedonia. Two visits. Chapter 1, verse 16. He either took an emergency trip there or he made that first visit on the way to Macedonia. We don't know for sure. Then he returned to Ephesus to continue ministry there. Whichever it was, whether it was an emergency trip or he made that first trip to Macedonia, that visit did not go well. In fact, Paul appears to have been publicly opposed by some individual in the church. And the church did not stand by Paul. So Paul left, hurt, unsure how to handle it, but still planning to go back. But given time to think about how to handle it, he decided rather than returning, he was going to write them a very stern letter of rebuke. It's often referred to as the severe letter because we know that it was so strong. And he did this in lieu of a personal visit. That letter is the third letter Paul wrote to this church. It has not survived for us today. We don't have a copy of it and we don't have a copy of that very first letter about sexually immoral people. Paul sent Titus to deliver that letter, not Timothy. And that's why we see Titus returning 
Here in this passage, that's one thing that distinguishes that first letter from first. I mean, that first Corinthians from this third severe letter. Well, back in chapter one, Paul was defending his reasoning for writing them that letter rather than visiting, because most likely the false teachers in Corinth were accusing Paul of being unreliable and unloving. Look, he won't even come to you. He's just written this letter. Well, Paul is going to defend his decision to write that letter again here in this passage that we are looking at. By the way, if you have not done the math, or if you don't do math well, that means 2 Corinthians is the fourth piece of communication that we have between Paul and this church. It's likely he wrote them more. I'm not sure you could find a church more riddled with problems than the church at Corinth. I'd like to know who they are if it's not them. So while it's impossible to know every detail with absolute certainty, something like that had to happen. So today's text returns to that subject that we were talking about way back in chapter 2, the severe letter. And it supplies us with the information that Titus brought back to Paul concerning how the Corinthians responded to that severe letter. Now it's impossible to know everything about the passage we're looking at today without at least refamiliarizing ourselves with chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. So really quickly let's read that. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. See, he's, he's defending his, his decision to write a letter rather than returning. I, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I also, excuse me, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with or by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And then in verse 14, Paul launches into everything we've looked at for the past five chapters, unrelated to that visit of Titus to Corinth. He's just been defending his ministry. 
So Paul chose to write a letter to them rather than make another painful visit, he calls it there in verse 1, to Corinth. I'm sure this was decided by Paul after much prayer and consideration. You notice he said there in verse 4 that he wrote to them out of much affliction, anguish of heart, many tears. He didn't want to cause them pain, but this is what they needed to hear. It was for their good. Again, that letter has not survived for us today, but we learned somewhat of the contents of that letter from what he says here. Someone stood up to Paul when he made that Return visit to Corinth. Paul obviously spoke to that in the severe letter. The church rightly excluded that person. But Paul must have been informed by Titus that this man had repented. And so Paul says in verse 6, the punishment by the majority is enough. He's repented. You should rather turn and forgive him. Make him a member again. Bring him back in. Restore his membership. Look, that's the goal of church discipline. If, if you exercise church discipline, the goal is that the person repents. You don't get mad at them and never let them back in. And Paul's saying, look, it worked. Restore them. Then in verse 12 and 13, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, there was this door open for me in the Lord, but my spirit was not at rest because Titus wasn't there. And so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. The gospel was effective in Troas, but Paul was so troubled, so concerned by the situation in Corinth that he just couldn't work. So he left. He crossed the Aegean Sea and he went to Macedonia. And then in verse 14, that parenthetical you know, section that we've looked at over the last four or five chapters takes place. Well, he immediately picks right back up in that narrative here in the chapter that we, we're looking at today. The name of my sermon this morning is A Hopeful Report. In this text, we learn that Titus returned to Paul from Corinth with a report that gave Paul great hope for the church that he had labored in for so many years. Months. All right, he begins here in verse 2. He says, Make room in your hearts for us, for we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. This is, this is essentially what Paul said back in chapter 6, verse 13, when he says, Widen your hearts to us. Here he says, Make room in your heart for us. Well, between those two petitions, verse 13 of chapter 6, and here in verse 2 of chapter 7, Paul has rebuked them for partnering with false teachers. How at least some in the church needed to back away from false teachers that had weaseled their way into the church and apparently had even taken some teaching roles there. You can't lock arms with false teachers and promote God's truth. It's not possible. But now Paul is pleading with them again, make room for us 
in your hearts. Paul had not done anything wrong to the saints in Corinth. In fact, he had done much good to the saints in Corinth. Besides being the very instrument through which God saved their souls, Paul had actually essentially pastored the church for 18 months. Not to mention all of the time he had had to spend writing letters to them back and forth because they couldn't seem to straighten anything out. I'm not sure any church ever in Paul's life took more time than the church at Corinth. He and those working with him had wronged no one. They had corrupted no one. The things they had preached were the truth. It was the false teachers that were corrupting everything. Not Paul. Paul had taken advantage of no one. Now this is something we'll probably deal with later in this Letter. This is probably an answer to a charge against Paul that he was embezzling money from that offering to the church in Jerusalem. The net actually renders this, we have exploited no one. The Holman Christian Standard says, we have defrauded no one. There's probably some money here. There does seem to be some, some charge of, of Paul using money wrongly and he denies it flatly. We've defrauded no one. We've not robbed anyone. He'll address this later in the letter. Verse 3 says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. This, this verse leads me to believe that at least the majority of the church did not accept the false teacher's accusation that Paul was embezzling money. The majority did not. But a significant minority apparently did. And so he addresses it. Paul makes clear he's not condemning the church as a whole. I know you don't all feel this way. Listen to this pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. Paul's life was bound to their life. When they made mistakes, when they made missteps that hurt their walk with the Lord, their, their service to Jesus, Paul was hurt because he was their spiritual father. He was the one through whom God had saved their souls. He spoke to them as children. I doubt most realize the anxiety of a pastor when sheep in the congregation repeatedly make wrong decisions. It's not something we just grin and bear. Let me say this pastoring can be an emotional roller coaster at times if you care about people. If you're just here for money, nobody cares. I hope it's apparent we're not just here for the money. Paul says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. This is an odd sentence written to this church. Paul had spoken with great boldness in that severe letter that he sent to them. That's what he's referencing here. Back in chapter 6 verse 11, he said, We have spoken freely to you. Same idea. I didn't hold anything back. I told you exactly what you needed to hear, whether you liked it or you didn't like it. And then knowing what we know... That false teachers 
had been tolerated in this church, even supported by some of the membership, perhaps again, even this significant minority, look at what Paul says. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. What is, who? Did he forget who he's writing to? This is not the church at Philippi. This is the church at Corinth. How in the world could Paul have pride? This is not, by the way, it's not arrogant pride. That's not what this is. This, is, this just means confidence. Paul had confidence in them. How could, how could Paul have biblical, spiritual confidence, pride in this group? How could he be comforted by this group, even to the point that he calls it overflowing joy? You say, I don't know. Well, you soon will because he just keeps writing and he tells us exactly why. We don't have to wonder. Notice what he says. It, it'll be coming up here two verses later. We need to work through verse 5 first though. For even when we came into Macedonia, again, he talked about this back in chapter 2. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now here's why I did all that legwork when we started out this sermon. That's why we had all that introduction. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though there was a door open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Same thing here. The gospel was impacting Troas. A door for ministry is open. Paul's ministry is prospering. But Titus didn't come. And Paul was concerned. So he left. He took leave, it says. He headed towards Corinth himself and he went on to Macedonia where everything was going to be great, except it wasn't. In fact, it wasn't any better. <laughs> In Macedonia, Paul says, Our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without and fear within. He's likely glancing back to what he said in chapter 4 when he said, We are afflicted in every way. But he went on to say, But not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's how Paul found himself here when he leaves and goes to Macedonia. He had left Troas hoping to find Titus and rest, and he found neither one when he got there. But that was not the end. That was not the end. Notice verse 6. But God. Do you know how many times the Bible uses those two words so amazingly for us? Acts chapter 7. Lord willing, we'll get here very soon. In Stephen's sermon, he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. That's just rich. Acts 13, Paul says of Jesus, When they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. 
but God raised him from the dead. I'm sure you're all familiar with Ephesians 2. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, right? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This, this but God statement is so common in Scripture. And we find another one of those here by Paul the theologian. Titus doesn't get credit for showing up. God gets credit for bringing Titus back. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. But God, well that ought to comfort us on our worst day. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And well, this makes sense of what we read way back in the salutation of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. That makes sense now that we're here to chapter 7. Titus finally shows... He wasn't in Troas, he wasn't in Macedonia when Paul initially got there, but now he has shown up. And through Titus, God brought comfort to Paul in the midst of severe anxiety. And what specifically was it about Titus' coming that comforted Paul? We don't have to wonder. It's right here in the text. Not only by his coming, not just because I like him, not just because he's a friend, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even the more. These, these saints had welcomed Titus with open arms. In fact, Paul says here that Titus was comforted by them. Guys, look. Put your mind where Titus's was when Paul put this letter in his hand and said, take this to Corinth. He had to be concerned. I certainly would have been. Look, he sent Titus to Corinth with a severe letter. Titus knew exactly what was in that letter. That assignment alone had to take with it a, a level of concern. Surely Titus was uneasy. Before they had treated Paul badly, which is why Paul wrote this letter in the, the first place. And Paul was the founder of the church. Did it seem likely now that they were going to, to treat Titus, Paul's emissary, any better than they had treated Paul? No. It didn't. And Titus seems to have also been tasked with completing the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Imagine that, showing up with a, a letter of rebuke saying, hey, this is pretty rough, read this. And by the way... Y'all take up all the money you promised to give to Jerusalem too. It's likely Titus was anxious. I know Todd Bryant would have been anxious. But when he got there, Titus was actually comforted 
by the church. All of that anxiety just went away. He was comforted by the church. They responded well to this severe letter. They expressed their desire to make things right with the Apostle Paul. At least the majority of the church did. We know there's still this this minority over here and they're a problem. But the majority of the church wanted to be right with Paul. Titus told Paul of their longing for Paul, their mourning for Paul, their zeal for Paul. Months Paul waited to hear that. Months. We live in this text day where we're like, man, you didn't have to worry but a little bit. Maybe he left them a message and they called him back. No, no, months Paul waited on this. He'd been worried about how they might receive this letter. We don't have to wonder about that. He tells us that here. It's clear this was a sharp rebuke. But now he had a reason to rejoice because they desired to see Paul. They mourned at how things had had gone the, the time he visited before. They were zealous for him. They knew they were indebted to him for all of the ministry that he had done among them. So Paul not only rejoiced that Titus was treated so well by the church, but that Titus brought this message of corporate repentance. They repented of their actions. Notice verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a little while. Boy, you get the heart of a pastor here from Paul. But Paul is often given a rough go. I mean, people talk about Paul like he's just this heartless critic. Man, that is not the Paul of Scripture. Paul's referring to that severe letter. Even if I made you grieve with this severe letter, I do not regret it. Again, this letter's not survived for us, but it had to be a scolding. Or he he wouldn't have said this. But now that he is convinced that that letter served its purpose, he didn't regret sending it one bit. But it had initially grieved them. While he waited for Titus to return, Paul began to wonder, should I have sent that? I'm not sure. He says that initially he did regret it. If he'd have lived today, he might have hit the unsend button. But there wasn't an unsend button. Once Titus was gone, he was gone. Paul's not sure how they were going to respond. I mean, Paul's not omniscient any more than we are. So he was torn internally while he waited. Perhaps this letter's not going to make things better, I'm sure Paul thought. Maybe it's actually going to make things worse. Paul didn't know. I mean, he had written to the churches in Galatia saying, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Maybe Corinth was going to respond similarly. But that was not to be. The letter served its purpose. And so in verse 9, Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. As Pat Dye once said, hindsight is 50-50. And so now, in hindsight, Paul viewed this letter 
differently than while he was waiting. While he was waiting for Titus to return, he didn't know. But now he knew. God had used it. They were cut to the heart. And so Paul rejoiced like any pastor would rejoice who is worth his weight in salt. They were grieved, but in a good way. One of Wendy's favorite sayings is, good grief. And I've often looked at her and said, how is grief good? I think she plagiarized Charlie Brown, by the way. Well, baby, here's the answer of how grief can be good. Grief is good when it produces repentance. So there is a such thing as good grief. Here, Paul talks about it. Paul rebuked them in that letter, and it produced what Paul calls a godly grief. But God was in this. He used the words of Paul, as strong as they were, he used the words of Paul to produce this feeling of guilt among the saints in Corinth, at least the majority. Now, let me remind you, these are believers that Paul is writing to. Don't be thrown off by the word repentance. I know generally when we talk about biblical repentance, we're referring to a lost person being converted to Jesus. If you'll remember, Brian preached a marvelous sermon on the subject of repentance at our summer conference. One of the best, if not the best, I've ever heard on that subject. Go listen to it if you have already forgotten it. But Brian pointed out in that sermon that the Greek word metanoia, from which we get our English word repentance, just refers to a change of mind. That's it. A change of mind. Now the vast number of times that it's used in the Bible, it means a change of mind about sin, a change of mind about Jesus. But in this particular case, it's used differently than it normally is used. In this verse, Paul refers to believers that had made an egregious error concerning the Apostle Paul, and they repented. They changed their mind about their actions and their attitude towards Paul. And they proved, by the way, that they were true believers. This was brought about as God worked through the Holy Spirit, through that letter that Paul had sent to them, delivered by the hand of Titus. They saw their guilt, and then they did not stubbornly stick to their guns. That's what we usually do. Let me tell you why what you think is wrong about me is actually right. No, they didn't do that. They didn't dig in their heels. They didn't refuse to admit they're wrong. All of that is natural, but it is unhelpful. They received the words of Paul as truth and they changed their mind. They repented. This resulted in what we saw back in verse 7. They longed for Paul. They mourned for how they treated their spiritual father. They reaffirmed their zeal for him, their support for him. This was not unanimous. It was not unanimous. It seems quite obvious from everything we've looked at up to this point in this letter that there's still a group that opposes Paul, but the majority supported Paul. The majority repented. So rather than the severe letter causing them hurt, Paul says, you suffered no loss through us. 
you see. What could have been bad wasn't. All right. I'd prefer to complete the chapter today, but y'all have listened so slow. (laughs) So we'll do the rest next week. But before that, let me say some things. I've been reading this book on the Holy Spirit by Costi Hen, and at the end of every chapter, he has this little section he calls learning to live. Learning to live. It's really just the application section, but he's spruced it up, and now he calls it learning to live, where he's just telling you what this chapter means in our daily life. So we have, we have determined the meaning of the passage. What does that mean for us today? Let's consider that. I think there's some things here. I don't have a ton, but what I do have is important. I'm going to be very transparent here. Paul exposes the heart of a pastor in this text. I seriously doubt most church members could remotely come close to understanding the anxiety of a shepherd regarding sheep that God has placed under his care. I know some of you saw that that lengthy quote by John MacArthur that I shared last week on social ministry on the difficulties of ministry. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to share the last line. Here's what it says, quote, All pastors, all pastors know the hurt that comes when those in whom they've invested the most return the least. End quote. All pastors have experienced that. Here's here's the transparency that I promised you. Some of you are rougher around the edges than you should be after decades of following Jesus. That's true. And that hurts a pastor to preach for year after year after decade after decade and not see the change he wishes that he would see from Scripture. Others have spiritual gifting that you don't use enough. God has given you so many gifts for this church. We need them. We need those gifts. Some could probably help the youth in this church more with just a little bit of sacrifice of time. Listen. When those things don't happen, it hurts a pastor's heart. I mean, that's what we want to see going on. I'm not sure that you know this, but your elders are not getting rich doing this job. We're spent at times. I mean, we study literally hours and hours for each sermon. That includes Wednesday, by the way. Those those aren't halfway studied, though. We spend just as much time for that. For your benefit... We want the best for you just like Paul wanted the best for these saints here in Corinth. Same thing. Having served with Jacob and Brian for years, I can honestly say that we care for you. We care for your well-being. That's the truth. And I don't want to move on without including your teachers because people just walked out of Blake's class here a second ago and said, Wow, that was amazing. Burl said, I don't want to follow that next week. We're blessed. Even our kids are blessed to have ladies that spend time studying and preparing to teach them. 
We're blessed. Okay, that's point number one. We can all be better. Some of us could be better, better. Second point. I know those transitions are supposed to be smoother, but it's just not going to be. Point two. We all must have a willingness to have difficult conversations with other believers in the church. In Titus chapter 2, Paul describes discipleship in the local church, calling on older men to disciple younger men and older women to disciple younger women. There is no retirement in this life from Christianity. If you are a long-time believer, we need you now more than we have ever needed you. We need you to disciple those younger If we as a church are going to follow the Titus 2 model, then we are going to have to commit to having difficult conversations with other believers that are doing something or not doing something that is detrimental to their walk with Jesus. Paul sent these people a very difficult piece of communication. And it wasn't easy. He had all this anxiety in this. We have to be willing to have those difficult conversations. Now, listen closely. This does not mean sharing your personal opinion about something you just plain old don't like. That's not what's going on here. Too many churches split over silly, immature stuff like that right there. We don't need that. This does not refer to heartless chastisement where you're interested more in your brother following your rules than Jesus. Paul addresses liberty in other passages, the strong and the weak. I'm not going to go into that today. I'm just saying that's not what this is. There's a very fine line between open and transparent in what people need to hear and being an absolute jerk. We need to walk that line. And it usually comes out when your motive is not love and when the good of your brother or sister isn't the goal. Well, that's not all that's going on with Paul. He was worried about their good, and so he he writes them. His love for these saints is clear throughout this section and throughout this letter. MacArthur again writes this, quote, Paul was not an abusive, harsh disciplinarian, but a reluctant one. Paul wished he hadn't sent the letter for a while, remember? He didn't want to hurt them. He took no joy in telling them what they needed to hear, but he sure was glad that God used it and it worked out. And that ought to be our attitude when we go to a brother or sister to correct them. All right. I've not been very fluid so far, so point three. This is the third point of application. It's related to the one we just went through. Be open to criticism from well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, if we're going to be a church where discipleship occurs, then we must be willing to listen to legitimate scriptural concerns from other members of the church. The writer of Hebrews says we must consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So as a member here, you should be discipling younger believers, but you should also be being discipled by long-time believers. 
Everyone needs that. Don't be defensive. Not when a a person is truly concerned about the well-being of your, your soul. Now, they may come to you about something, and they may be wrong. But you have to go to Scripture and study out that issue. Perhaps they have a weaker conscience than you. That's, that's not, I don't mean you have to follow the conscience of the weak. You have to respect him and love him. But don't initially make the assumption out of a defensive posture as if you couldn't be wrong. We all can be, and I have little doubt, are in some situations. Let me close with this. Jacob stole my thunder, but I'm going to re-say it. We're not apostles. Not just the elders, though. None of us are apostles. We are not writing Scripture. Our opinions aren't the Bible. The only inspired thing we have is this book. We all have opinions about various other things. God is not breathing infallible words through us. But we are to take this book and disciple one another by the truths that is taught in it. And that's what we need to do. Listen, finding the right thing to believe from the Bible is actually far easier than living out that belief. I know churches where the theology is good on paper. And I don't want to walk within 10 miles of that congregation because they're so mean-spirited and wicked. It's easy to know what the Bible says. But it is hard to do it. You know what we find here in Paul? We find him doing the hard things. We need that. Guys, look, we are are blessed here. We have a wide variety of people in different walks of life with various backgrounds interpreting liberty in various ways. Praise the Lord. That is good. That's That's what a healthy church looks like. A healthy church is not full of people who just live in uniformity. We're not called to be uniform. We are just called to be united in the gospel. Every single one of us is stronger in some areas and weaker in others. Everybody. Amen, somebody. But God has placed us here on purpose. Just the way we are. To help each other. To grow each other. To disciple each other. So let us not neglect our purpose here in this local church. Let's follow the example of the Apostle Paul. Let's be willing to help our brothers and sisters so that we all have more zeal to serve the Lord. And this means, I'm going to close with this, this means we must commit to having helpful discipleship conversations, however difficult they may be, whether we are on the giving end of that or the receiving. May the Lord add His blessings to His Word. Ben, will you dismiss us please?